I'm Elena Landsberg-Lewis, your host of Grandmothers on the Move, the podcast that kicks old stereotypes to the curb. Come meet these creative, outrageous, authentic, adventurous, irreverent, and powerful disruptors and influencers. Grandmothers, from the living room to the courtroom, making powerful contributions in every walk of life. We know them most intimately as loving caregivers, the older women in our lives with a thousand stories about their grandchildren and pictures in their purses. In this podcast, you'll come to know even more about our grandmothers. They are galvanized, determined, and are guaranteed to get you thinking. What drives them? What are they up to? What is the potential of grandmother power, and how is it changing the world? Grandmothers are on the move. You don't want to be left behind. Hi, it's Ilana. Welcome back to Grandmothers on the Move. I can't wait to share this conversation with you. But first, let me introduce the two women that you're going to hear from today. And bear with me because they have a most remarkable history to which I cannot do justice, but I should share some of it with you. Jacqueline Pitangui from Brazil, a name that is synonymous with feminist activism, feminist governing, women's rights in Brazil, and Branca Moreira Alves, a compañera of Jacqueline's in the work to build the feminist movement in Brazil, who then went on to work at UNIFEM, the United Nations Development Fund for Women. Together, they are now writing a book of critical feminist organizing history in Brazil, and they agreed to join me today together to share insights, stories, reflections on grandmotherhood, and so, so much more. A bit of a background. Jacqueline is a sociologist who began her feminist activism in the 70s while also struggling for the democratization of Brazil, then under a dictatorship. She met Branca and with two other friends started a feminist group, Ceres. From 1986 to 1989, she held a cabinet position as president of the National Council for Women's Rights, a sort of ministry inaugurated with the first civilian government after the military rule. You will hear much more about this from Jacqueline herself in a moment. And in 1990, she started SEPIA, an NGO that is now celebrating its 30th anniversary and that she coordinates with feminist friend Lela Barstead. She has been the Laurie New Jersey Chair in Women's Studies at Rutgers University, the Chair of the Board of the Global Fund for Women, of the Brazil Fund for Human Rights, and a member of the board of many different national and international organizations. Branca Moreira Alves says that the most important part of her bio after motherhood is having become a feminist in one moment when a friend asked her the simple question, what do you think of feminism? It brought everything together, and from that moment on, feminism has defined her life. She went to Berkeley in the late 60s and early 70s and read as much as she could of the literature that was forbidden at home in Brazil under military dictatorship. Marx, Engels, history of every revolution she could get her hands on. But as she says, where were the women? She graduated Phi Beta Kappa and wrote a paper on Rosa Luxemburg and Clara Zetkin. Back in Brazil in 1973, she focused on women's history, activism, did a master's in political science, wrote a book from her thesis about women's suffragists, and of course, started the consciousness raising group in Rio de Janeiro with Jacqueline and others. She became a lawyer and opened the first Brazilian pro bono law office for women and got a section of the Rio State Bar Association to specialize in women's rights. She became a public prosecutor and in 1987 was nominated as the first president of the state government's inaugural office for women's rights. 
And then in 1992, she was asked by the director of UNIFEM, the United Nations Development Fund for Women, to open an office in the Brazil Southern Cone in Brasilia. She then worked at UNIFEM from that time until her retirement. These are two extraordinary women, and we just had the most magnificent conversation, almost an hour, but far too short to do justice. The remarkable past work and continuing work of both Jacqueline and Branca. What a profound pleasure to have you with us today on Grandmothers on the Move. Welcome. Thank you, Ilana. It's wonderful to be on the move. <laughs> in this case, as in so many cases when I'm speaking to women who have spent a lifetime in activism, on the move is not just a cute title, it's a literal description of your lives. You've been on the move for as long as I've known about and known both of you. <laughs> It'd be wonderful and beautiful to take some time for reflection. But let's start here. I know, Branca, that you and Jacques We're doing some important work together. Jackie, you start. Well, in 1981 or 82, I really don't remember exactly, Branca and I published a book called What is Feminism? And we wrote this together and was beautiful working together because we came from already many, many years of activism and also sharing life, sharing feelings on a group called Sadis that the feminist movement led us to start. And so when we worked on this book, we wanted to make feminism more historical and more understandable to young women. And fortunately, it was very successful. It had nine editions. And then we just left it. I don't know, maybe, Branca, for 20 years And I cannot tell you exactly why, but we did decide to work on it again because a lot that was very important for women in Brazil had happened exactly after the momentum we finished the book. So we started working on it mid-70s and the 80s until the 90s. We're going to stop in 1990 because it marks the promulgation, the inauguration of our new constitution. And it's a time of hope, of accomplishments, of very strong feminism activists, of which both of us were part. So we are writing a story that we were protagonists, but not only us. We started to do interviews with women that were also part of the move on those decades. So it's a very non-academic book, full of memories, full of moments that you can catch and say, my goodness, this happened this way at this moment. It's a way to look at history, really telling the story as we lived it. And it's been wonderful working with Branca again. She's in Barbacena, I'm in Rio, but technology brings us together. And before COVID, we would meet from time to time. I mean, it's been a beautiful journey. I'm so happy to be on it. Amazing to come back to something that held so much contemporary meaning and then to revisit it as an essential part of history. When we wrote the first one, What is Feminism? It was published in 1981. 
one. And it was a very simple booklet for young women. For high school, we went into the history of women pioneers, etc. And then we went on with our lives, both of us. And now Jacqueline is still working with her NGO. I'm retired from UNIPEN. We thought that it would be a wonderful present that we would give to the new generation because we see the young women everywhere, how strong they are and how they are fighting. We also are very sorry that much of the fight is still the same, like violence, for instance, and reproductive rights. But we focused in Rio, 1975. That's when we start the book, because Jacqueline and I were already part of a consciousness-raising group of feminists. And in 1975 was the first International Women's Year of the UN, and we were in the dictatorship, which had the military coup was in 1964, and we were under military dictatorship. So we took the umbrella of the UN and of the Brazilian Press Association that we could organize a seminar about the reality of women in Brazil. And women came from different states. Many women came without knowing what feminism was like. They heard from someone that there was going to be the seminar, blah, 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 and they came. And many of them say that from this seminar, they became feminists. It is considered by historians that this was like the beginning of the second wave of feminism in Brazil. So Jacqueline and I decided that we had to focus on Rio because it was where it started and we were part of it. This was our life. And as we were researching, because much of it we had forgotten the details, we went back into documents, but also with our friends. We called one and then another. Many of them we had not seen for 20, 30 years. We had all gone in our different ways, everybody feminists, but going to different places in Brazil, etc. And so we started calling them and they were giving their testimony. And that's when it dawned on us that it's a collective memory. So that's what we're doing. We are giving the history and we quote who was saying this and that and that. So it's really a collective memory that we're doing. And the reason we finished the book in 1990 is because the dictatorship ended in 1984, 20 years. But by that time, the Brazilian society was very mobilized. All the different social movements had grown during the dictatorship. Because of the dictatorship, I would say we were very organized and the feminist movement was quite strong and vocal. Now, Jacqueline, you go in with the National Council for Women's Rights. Well, I think that what Branca is saying, that we pick a place from where to start to look at history, the place is Rio de Janeiro, and we picked a time, and the time is the 70s and the 80s. And we did that because, as she said, on the 70s, it inaugurates feminism as an organized movement in the Brazilian arena. And on the 80s, this movement did uh, what I used to call the astronaut step and walked into the state, a state that had been divorced from civil society for 21 years, a state that we feared, a state that violated human rights, a state occupied by military. And we dared, we feminists, dared to step into the state, understanding that in a country with the complexity and the size of Brazil, you know, those continental countries, mm -hmm. we 
needed a central national place of power to change women's condition in Brazilian society. And then the National Council for Women's Rights, which was not a council, was a kind of a ministry, was a creation of the feminist movement and remained a feminist space. That's what's more interesting. And a feminist institutional place to advance our agenda. And I had this, what I call, historical opportunity to head this council exactly during the Constitution, which marked our new identity as citizens with full rights, because we didn't. So in this book, what I want to say is that we are recreating this moment, and it is so beautiful, on the other hand, to hear the voices, the testimonies, And I think Branca and I will put on the preface that there might be historical errors, that it is a short-sighted perspective. We are both high middle class, urban, white women. So this limits our perspectives. But we are trying to collect as much testimonies as possible And what we see is that in spite of our diversity, there is a sense that unites us, which is that those moments were moments of inauguration of women as a full citizen in Brazilian society. And we are capturing it. So it's, it's very exciting. Even in a synopsis, it's thrilling to listen to. You were both there during the movement building phase. What we recognize now is those moments of the unleashing of energy around women's rights when it comes together and the momentum is created and the articulation of the rights that are being claimed starts to come into clear focus. And two things strike me in what you've both said. This happened, as you say, during a moment of dictatorship. And two, that the National Council of Women's Rights, even the name of it, is unusual because usually it's the Women's Council or the Women's Ministry, that it remained a feminist space and that the institutionalization didn't turn it into a bureaucratic arm of the sort of newly formulated state with a new constitution. That's most unusual. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? I think I'm going back to my own experience, okay? Sure. I'm a graduate of Berkeley. Berkeley in the early 70s was what we know a very revolutionary campus. And I returned to Brazil after my graduation in 1972, and it was maybe the most violent years of the dictatorship. But what I think happened when I returned and I went into postgraduate and I met other women and we started our consciousness raising group, etc. There was this feeling that we were able to advance the cause of feminism, but we were also very conscious that we had to have partners because we could not have a free world for women under a dictatorship. A dictatorship is something so horrible. I remember saying once about this in 1975, talking to my mother who was in the church and also helping to hide prisoners, etc. I said, there are only two camps. You are either against or you are with them. 
And this is, I think, the spirit under a dictatorship. It's not that we are brave in any different way. It's just that we cannot allow or we cannot accept what we see around us. And feminism gave us such a strength, you know. We found out that we were important. And Jacqueline, I wonder how, having been in a position of formal leadership with the National Council of Women's Rights, how the women's movement grew up in, came through the dictatorship, managed to keep all of its coherence, its momentum, and how you kept the council from devolving into women's machinery of bureaucratization, but keeping it a feminist space. I'm just very interested in what you think made it possible. Well, I think that I will just reinforce a little bit what Branca said about dictatorship, because dictatorship at the same time raises limits, puts barriers, and opens doors. And there are priorities, and the main priority is democratization, meaning a democratic institutions, meaning a state that does not violate human rights, a state that does not torture, disappears with people, and all the horror that comes with military dictatorship. And this, as Branca said, uh, in order to be strategic and to act politically, we need to build fronts. We are living in a similar situation now in Brazil where we need to build fronts, but we can talk about it later. Mm-hmm. So during the dictatorship, on one hand, we needed to build a front. And the front was with the resistance and the slogan as people uh, united uh, will win. O povo unido jamais será vencido. On the other hand, we were the identity movements deconstructing this idea of people that had no sex, had no color, no race, no ethnicity, no sexual orientation. I mean, what is people? The concept of people only accommodated class. So what we did was simultaneous. But we we are not conscious that we're doing it. This is an ex post facto thinking. But what we were doing, not only us feminists, but this is a moment the political arena of Brazil starts to become much more complex with black movements, with movements that were demanding the demarcation of indigenous lands, environmental movements, and the rebirth of unions, which uh, were quite uh, dormant and had a rebirth. So the 70s were a decade where the public arena was full of new agendas and new identities, but... I say it with no problem. I think that in terms of social movements, we women's movements, feminist movements, were one of the most visible and strong. At the same time that you join the front, you also claim an identity. It's simultaneous. And that's what happened on the 70s. And we had to claim this identity so strongly. We had to state our legitimacy that we were not divisionists because the traditional left would say, how how can you talk about women's rights when in this moment of horror, we need to build a front? You shouldn't talk about this. And you know this Marxist contradiction, principal and secondary So we would say, no, no, this is simultaneously because when we have democracy, we need to have equality. Now, your second question is very important 
and it has to do with something very, very difficult, using power without being co-opted. Right. And how did we do that? First, I think that all of us that went to the National Council, I mean, this was in Brasilia, it's I don't know, more than a thousand kilometers from Bahia, whenever they lived on. We left. We went to live on this place that is a power place. It is a capital that's built around power, that breathes power. We moved there, but we didn't have a luggage. When I think of the women who were in the council with me, none of us was carrying a heavy luggage of a political party or of a commitment with something that was not women's rights. And we were different. We came from different states, different life experiences. There was a lot of diversity in the National Council, but there was this communality. We were there for one mission. Second, the council didn't have a heritage. It was new. It was just inaugurated. So we could shape it, and we did shape it. We knew exactly whom we were committed to. We knew how we got there. And we knew why we would be there. And it was to push the women's rights agenda, not only on the Constitution, but we had programs on education. We had programs on health, on rural women, on black women, on legislation, culture, violence. We had a documentation center We had an autonomous budget, quite substantive for the moment. So it was a ministry, but it's very interesting that all the women who were there holding positions of coordinators or directors, they were committed to the same. And that's what I think responds to your question. How come we did not become a bureaucratic machinery serving a political party of a group Mm -hmm. of interests, but how we remained a governmental organ at the same time was not. When we walked into the corridors of the National Constitutional Assembly at the National Congress, we went there every day for three years. We were marching as government, but we were accompanied by association of domestic workers, unions of rural women, etc., etc., and we were representing them, not the government. So it was a schizophrenic in a way. I think it's important also to say that this kind of political action, being in government but committed to civil society agenda, does not last. It lasted until we were able to inaugurate October 1988, the new constitution, and almost one year later, we still remain. And then the political forces of the government that were the conservative sectors were regaining strength and articulation and had to expel us because we didn't belong there anymore. And so what happened, which I think it's a major historical event, but as it is a women's event, it's not written, it's not told, it's not studied, we all resigned. And we walked from the place we were lodged, which was the Ministry of Justice, we had our headquarters there, until the palace 
with women that came from all over the country walking together so that I rendered my resignation letter to the president. And this is a historical moment. Mm-hmm. And Branca was there and we walked side by side. That is a remarkably important historical moment. Like Jacqueline was describing, it was such a moment in history. We were fortunate to be able to catch this moment. There are many reasons why this moment was so special. And one of the reasons also is because our movement from 1975 on had spread all over Brazil. Like there was this underground desire from 75 on, groups sprang up fighting in universities to have women's studies. And the question of violence was very, very strongly one of our main subjects and reproductive rights. This was a clash with the Catholic Church. But it was really like this historical moment when I look back, I say, my God, how lucky we were to have lived it because it it just sprung up in the unions, domestic servants. It, It was not in the early 80s without clashes. Exactly because of what you're saying. There was one very well known, and we go back to this national meeting in 1984 of feminists, no, of the women's movement, in which there was a very strong clash because some women were really fearing that if we had, we were discussing the creation of this national council, some feared that it would be co-opted as it was later as it is now. But it was a moment, I always say, it's like the horse was going by, we just jumped on it. And Jacqueline came and uh, the first president, also Ruth Escobar. This horse was there, it was us. It was the feminist movement, the horse. And so the National Council could ride this horse and with us, with us. We were one whole body, the horse and the riders, you know. And uh, without the feminist movement, the National Council would not have advanced so much. And without the National Council, we would not have had what we got in the Constitution. So it was like a flash. There was a flash. We caught it and we were lucky. And then it it disappeared. Like everywhere, right? The the pendulum does swing. But during the the 90s, also, the, the Council was important. All the UN conferences and all that, it was very important. But really, until now, the council was very important, until the new government with Bolsonaro. And yeah, I would say that the council lost its importance on the 90s, because the council didn't have any more budget and didn't have any more the possibility to have personnel, which are two key things. It became a council. Before it was a ministry, but then, I think it was in 2000, when President Fernando Henrique Cardoso was on his last year of government, he had a decree that gave the National Council again the stature of a ministry, of a secretariat. This organ began again restructuring itself to be able to work, to function, to deliver because you do not deliver with words. One of the things I learned is that rhetoric is very important, but you don't go anywhere if you don't have money, if you don't have a budget, if you don't have accountability, and if you don't have qualified personnel working. And we did have all that at the National Council. And then during Lula's government, and functioned very well. I think that's what Branca wants to say. It was not a rupture forever until today. 
there was a, a moment that it worked and it worked well. But then by the end of Dilma's government, which is 2015, 2016, it already started to suffer a number of pressures. And today it is an organ that works against women, totally. That's right, against women. It's sad. It's heartbreaking given the history. I mean, it brings us to the present in a way that I, I don't want to ignore, especially with the two of you, because I know that these are tremendously hard and heartbreaking times in Brazil. There must be, for the two of you, a resonance for the 70s and what you were living with with the dictatorship then and how things are unfolding now, both globally and then at home. And as I think about, through this podcast, the privilege of speaking to older women who have a lifetime of experience and expertise, that it's interesting, you know, of course, we all look to young women because they're the future. We want them to pick up the mantle of all of these social justice movements and feminism. But in these moments, I have to be honest with you, I look to older women, older women who have the expertise on how you build movements through dictatorships, how you overcome a plague. You know, like my mother said in the very first interview I did with her when I said to her, how do you have hope? There's so much that's going off the rails. And she said to me, honey, there is optimism in survival. Oh, beautiful. And, uh, you know, you've had colds over your life. Mm -hmm. So when you start coughing and you have a fever or whatever, you say, oh, I'm, I have some signs here that I'm having a cold because I've gone through it. I can recognize it, right? Exactly. It's more or less the same in politics. When we start to see what's happening here, you say, ha, huh, I see this has happened before. Right now, we are involved in an issue about a dossier, the word dossier, it's very scary, about a dossier that was builded within a department that didn't exist before in the Ministry of Justice that has names, addresses, personal information, blah, 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 of a group of almost 600 people that's called anti-fascists. Doesn't it sound like the symptom of an infirmity that you've had already experienced? Mm -hmm. So what we are seeing now in Brazil is the history, the signs of a totalitarianism, authoritarianism, populism. Of course, they come differently. They do not come with a military coup, boots and arms, but they come with the destruction of the institutions. And this is happening in Brazil, but it's not happening only here. It's happening in Hungary. It's happening mm -hmm. in Turkey. Mm -hmm. It's happening in the Philippines. I mean, it's happening in different countries. And the symptoms, of course, given history, culture, particularities, etc., etc., the symptoms are very much the same. It's the neo-fascism, not in a war situation, not with a military coup, but with all the symptoms there. And it's very scary then for us, of my generation, Branca's generation, that have lived through this, and I've lived through it both in Brazil and in Chile, because I've, I went to Chile during the horror also of Pinochet government, dictatorship, you know. And then when you start to see this thing growing, sometimes it is very hard to be older 
because it gives you the awareness, the conscience. You cannot pretend you're not seeing the monster coming on, walking maybe with a different hopage, with a different makeup, but it's there and you see the monster. I live like in, in terror now because I recognize all the symptoms and I recognize the targets. The targets is democracy as a whole but also the target are certain categories that are particularly threatening for an authoritarian patriarchal government, which is feminists, LGBTs, movements against racism, indigenous peoples, science. And it's very much the same everywhere, you know, and it is an interpretation of religion in our cases, mostly Christianity, but it might be any religion. It's the interpretation of the sacred in a way that you can bring to people's daily life norms of conduct that are patriarchal and that you can transport this into public policies and forbid, for instance, the use of the concept of gender in educational plans like it is now in Brazil, or the provision of sexual education in schools, it's forbidden. Or you just block the services that, according to the law, should attend women and perform legal abortions in the situation where it is legal, like rape, for instance. We have just seen the day before yesterday, a horrible story in Brazil. I don't know if you are aware. A 10-year-old girl, she was raped since she was six by an uncle. And then by 10, she was pregnant. And when the pregnancy was discovered by a social assistant and the grandmother took her to have the abortion, the judiciary started to take some time to make a decision which is not necessary to have the judiciary interference. And then the health service in that particular state refused to perform the abortion on the little girl. And then a fundamentalist militant against abortion, one of those I call pro-death people, publicized the name of the little girl in the hospital in the Northeast, in another state, where she was being taken to have the abortion. And all these people, church, priestess, with the support of the Ministry of Women and Family, and they call it human rights, they went to the doors of the hospital. They harassed the little girl. They call her murder, the little girl. So this is happening now here. It shows you very clearly that these people have no limits, you know. And this is what you find when you break limits in dictatorship. So we are breaking limits here, limits that we're on for over 30 years. So the signs are there and we are older. We recognize them. You know, it's very alarming and sobering, Jacqueline, to hear someone like you say that you're living in terror. But of course, it's understandable why, because as you say... This is a familiar dirge. You see it, you know it, the same machinery of oppression. What needs to be done? It's like we're going into a tunnel. The tunnel is closing on us. But at the same time, there is resistance. This horrible episode that Jacqueline was describing, the feminists of that town where the abortion was 
being done. They also defended the little girl. They made demonstrations. They were in front of the hospital. They were facing the fanatics. And also social media. These young people use it very well. So there is this strength. Like in the 70s, there is resistance. During the election campaign, there was this big, big national movement of women saying, not him, not him, him being Bolsonaro. It was a beautiful demonstration all over the country. So we are reliving history, but there is resistance. Of course, and we are part of the resistance. And also there is institutions. I mean, the military coup destroys institutions immediately. They just close the Congress, they close the tribunals, and they put censorship on the press. We are not talking about the military. That's why it's not exactly the same episode. I like your image of a tunnel, Branca. Because a tunnel, you cross it, and you might see a light on the other end or not. So we don't know if there will be a light. The institutions are responding because they have not been able to destroy them. And because there are strong institutions, the Supreme Court is playing a major role now in backing up the executive federative power also, just as Trump, he goes against the press. So now the major newspapers are not aligned with him, even though they have helped to elect him. He doesn't what intermediates between him and the people. The populist leader address the people. He wants to be recognized directly by the people. And he doesn't accept any kind of criticism. And the mainstream press is very much against him now. So it's not exactly the same scenario where newspapers were in censorship. When you open a newspaper, you read articles against him. So this family is very negatively being destroyed by the press. Also, you do have resistance, and this is very important to point out, not only from civil society that traditionally have resisted even during very, very hard times of dictatorship, but you also have resistance coming from professional organizations, cultural sector, and environmentalists. In this list, you include the church, the Catholic church. The bishops published a very, very strong letter. However, the Catholic church will never, never, never be unallied with women. Oh, of course. And now, in this episode, the bishop from the place where the abortion took place, plus the head of the National Confederation of Bishops that takes stands for democracy, said that crime hediondo, a hideous, in English maybe, a hideous crime, had been committed by providing abortion to this girl. This is, again, history repeating itself. Yeah, Like uh, uh, they will unite uh, in terms of democratic values and defense of democratic institutions, but will go against feminists. Yeah. I think that it is... Sour sweet, it is sour that this happened. It's very sad that this little girl had to have this journey of horror in order to have the abortion. And on the other hand, it's wonderful that the feminist movement have responded. 
not only organizing her transportation, and, but also the doctors of the service that very bravely faced and performed the abortion. And also they were very sweet because they bought uh, toys for the girl's room in the hospital to give her some sort of comfort and psychological support, etc., etc. But that we are talking about it in 2020, in a country with the Constitution of Brazil, where women have gained equal rights, where we have advanced so much in reproductive rights. This is still there. It's very disappointing. Yeah, and this episode, it's like exaggerating our lack of reproductive rights. It just shows in this horrible way of not having reproductive rights and sexual rights. Yeah, we are in the hands of religious fanatics. And the Catholic Church, like Jacqueline was saying, there is a limit to their alliance with us. The limit is very clear. It was clear in the 70s, and it's clear now. Right, because control of women's bodies has always been of course, uh, at the center. There's a lot of horror in what's unfolding. The history that you're writing together now or updating, I understand better from listening to the two of you, it, it's landing in a different landscape. So in some ways, although it's a, the looking back and documenting very important moments in the history of Brazil, it's also about how you resist and how you overcome this is what I mean about looking to women who are a little bit older than we are. <laughs> Certainly for younger women and for people who are in the movements with you. I feel very strongly about this and I, I want to ask you about it. Something that I found a lot of older women activists are, it's not that they're writing themselves out of the story, it's that they're writing the young women in, in a very intentional and beautiful way. But at the same time, I find, and I wonder how you feel about this or what you think, that we're really suffering in this moment from not hearing from the elders. We're not hearing enough from you that to overcome what's happening in the world now, we really need the social movements that are intergenerational. And someone's asked me, what do you tell young women? I think I don't tell them anything. I don't think I can because I really don't know what it is to be young here now. I like to tell them our story because I think they can learn and they can see that we went through dictatorship and we came out of it. But I don't tell them what it is that they should do. They find by themselves like we did. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's not a recipe. How do you make the cake? Three eggs, four butter, whatever. But I do agree that we need intergenerational dialogue. There's a lot of learning coming from the young people to us. And also, there is a lot of learning for them that might come from hearing what we went through and how we acted. I think there is some differences that are crucial in terms of generation. I think that they have less prejudice than our generation had. They're more open. They are very quick to take decisions. And we were brought up on endless person-to-person meetings that would go through the night to come to a conclusion that such and such. They have those discussions on the timing of the internet. It's much quicker. They are also very good at organizing on a time before COVID where we would go to the streets. 
they don't have patience to do advocacy work. They don't have patience for dialogue with institutions, for politics, politics in the sense of politics. And politics means negotiation. Politics means sitting down, means building alliances for a specific goal. It means going to the National Congress, talking. They don't believe in institutions as we did. We were helping building institutions. So we believed in institutions, but they don't. So there is something different there. That That's why I think that intergenerational dialogue could make bridges. Uh, we have to be careful not to be boring, not to be on this, oh, you know, once upon a time, everything was so good, and we know everything, and you don't know. Sometimes older people adopt this kind of very boring way of talking to young people, and they can't stand it, and I understand them. I suppose when I was young, I wouldn't stand it either. But, you know, dialogue is not that. Dialogue is mutually learning, mutually reinforcing, and I think we need more. Yeah, I agree completely. I have yet to meet a woman who's been an activist her whole life who feels that she knows everything. And if the young women would just listen to her, everything would be okay. I've never heard it. <laughs> I do hear a lot of young people thinking they know everything. <laughs> I'll be honest. That's true. The older feminists I know have an enormous humility and I think a realistic outlook, exactly as both of you have said, the times have changed. The realities are different. The pace is different. Globalization, the access to the internet. And I see the older feminists recognizing how this changes movement building and coalition building, etc. But I like Jacqueline, what you said very much. It was something I haven't heard before, but of course it makes perfect sense around the recognition of the role of the institutions and how younger activists engage with them or don't. Okay, so let me switch gears before I let you both go. You've been very generous with your time and your wisdom. I do want to ask you about your own lives at this moment personally. I do know and appreciate, and as I get older, appreciate even more, that some of the pleasures in life, some of them that we've denied ourselves, some that we are giving ourselves more permission to spend time on, that these are really important dimensions of the lives of women who have devoted themselves to social justice and feminism. So what has changed in the way that you relate? It can be family, it can be time you take for yourself, it can be the way you relate to your own activism. Well, this is a very difficult question because it's to think about oneself, which is something that we usually don't do much, do we? We just leave, yeah. we just go on. Yes. Uh, I think that my life until COVID has not suffered great ruptures in terms of my professional activist life because I'm still very active. I didn't retire. I run an organization called CEPIA, C-E-P-I-A, which has just celebrated 30 years. I work every day. Every day I leave home and I go to the organization, to the headquarters. Well, it is a very recognized organization, and it's incredible that we have been navigating for 30 years and we are renovating ourselves. We have the agendas of uh, violence and access to justice, sexual and reproductive health and rights, 
but also we have now a program with young people and we are learning a lot with them. So I keep very busy on my work. Also internationally, there is a lot of, on this globalized world, international hats that you use. I'm uh, on the board of some organizations like WLP. I'm a member of the Inter-American Dialogue. So I still keep an agenda. I didn't suffer a rupture, said I'm retiring and I'm home now. I'm not. So in that sense... I think that the way I relate to my children, I have three children. I have two boys and one girl, but they're all grown up now. And I have six grandchildren, and we'll have the seven now in September. I think that what maturity brought me is the joy of being a grandmother. I mean, it is a very different feeling from being a mother. It gives you back your maturity. And it renovates you all the time also. And it's a relationship that has few duties and lots of pleasure. And this is just wonderful, wonderful. So I'm really, you know, enjoying being a grandmother, but I suffer a lot now that I can't see my grandchildren and it's all by Zoom or by internet. But being a grandmother, I never imagined that uh, would be such a joy Another thing that also uh, brings me a lot of joy is to see that my children survived the feminist activist mother uh, working in Brasilia, coming back to Rio, you know, talking to the president, but at the same time, do we have milk in the home and all these kind of things, you know? (laughs) (laughs) And then they survived and they are wonderful. And then I'm lucky that they have had also a support on their father. I think that this is so important, a man's role that is there taking care of them. And this was very important so that they could face this feminist activist on the move mother. I think both of them are very feminists. And this is something that gives me tremendous joy because they found their own way on the human rights path. We have so much common ground together in so many things and have a similar vision of the world. Now what COVID has brought me is being at home. Home every day since Mm -hmm. March 15. For instance, I cook. And this is a creative moment. But I I enjoy cooking. You know, I discovered that I have always enjoyed cooking. My mother taught me how to cook. And so I'm kind of recovering the times that I did not cook through my life. (laughs) Today I did a ceviche. I had never done it, you know. Called a friend in Chile because they do a lot there. And I said, I'm doing it and this is wonderful. (laughs) So there are joys (laughs) that keep you sane on this such a hostile environment that we are on. For the COVID also, you know, because COVID made clear the social inequalities that we live in terms of race, uh, in terms of ethnicity, in terms of poverty. Everything is so different for us, the privileged ones. Even the possibility to be in isolation, so many cannot, you know. So it's also a timing of reflection. And this planetary feeling came to me. What kind of planet are we building? What kind of planet are we responsible for? I think COVID, at the same time that brought 
the isolation, the very, very nuclear isolation, each one in one home. I mean, I don't see my children. I don't see my grandchildren. We are all isolated. But at the same time, it brought this planetary feeling. I belong to a planet. And this sense of planetary responsibility and the wanting, even if in a romantic way, not realistic maybe, but to think that maybe, maybe a few things will be better. I don't know. I love that because this time of reflection leads us down so many paths. And I agree with you. It's a privilege to have the ability to isolate as well. So recognizing that, and sometimes I feel like it's such an incendiary moment. Uh, Yes. And and I like to think, you know, is it the winds of change, the tides of change, whichever it is, it has to happen. (laughs) It just just has to happen. But I thank you for that, Jacqueline, so much. It's really beautiful. And Branka, what are you thinking here? I retired in 2002 from the UN, from UNIFEM. And I was very sad to retire, but I was 62 and I had to retire. It was mandatory. But then my husband and I, we decided to build a house in the countryside in a very beautiful place because it's mountains. I grew up across from the sea of Ipanema and now I am in the Minas Mountains and I like it very much. I like it better than the sea. And at first it was a big shock for me. You know, Unifem, we were so active. So it was a shock to all of a sudden not be in the center of things. And then for a few years, I started doing different things. Here there was in this smaller town, there was a group of feminists. Of course, I immediately joined and we reproduced a project that we had in Unifem. And it's a project that got the National Prize for Human Rights. And it's a project that gives women of the communities the basic knowledge about legislation and was very, very successful and it grew. And now with the book, it's a joy to go back and it's a joy to recover not only our own history, Jacqueline and I, but the history that was shared with our compañeras. And we have this beautiful experience of calling someone with whom we have not been in touch 30 years later. And they say, oh, Branca, oh, Jacqueline, oh, how wonderful you're doing this and blah, blah, blah. And so everybody is ready, so willing to help and to send us things and to open documents. And uh, do you remember this and remember that? And we laugh a lot. So wonderful thing. And about grandchildren, my God, how shall I say? Everybody says the same. I think all the grandmothers. It's a step back from being a mother. Being a mother is terrifying. I heard the podcast of you with your mother and how she said that she burst into tears when the nurse gave her the baby and said, enjoy the baby. (laughs) And yeah, the first night when I had my first daughter, I have two daughters and four grandchildren, two boys and two girls. The first night after she was born, I remember crying the whole night because I didn't know how to boil the baby bottle. Can you imagine? I look at this and say, it was not the boiling of the baby bottle and how to really clean it. It was the whole immensity of it. And I felt very insecure and very unprepared and and very not capable. So my mother came in and and I leaned on her a lot, etc. And now as a grandmother, it's just pure joy. The fact that it's a step back. 
And the other joy is to watch them becoming adults. Now my four grandchildren are young adults. They are starting their careers. The two oldest are journalists. The 25-year-old girl is finishing her medical school and so brave. The 21 is doing enterprise administration and economics. And it's so beautiful to see their generation, the first generation after the first generation of feminists of the second wave. It's our daughters. Right. And our sons. So it's beautiful to see them and passing on to the third generation. That is exhilarating. There is some kind of alchemy there that is so remarkable. When I speak to the grandchildren, the level of adoration, but also politicization, thinking about issues differently, their willingness to listen to their grandmothers in a way they cannot listen to mama. It's quite amazing, actually. And my boys get more feminism listening to my mother in five minutes than they do for me for 15 years of raising them. <laughs> but it's very special, right? Oh, yes. As my grandchildren are younger, they brought me back childhood. And this is wonderful because when you go old and old, you forget what is play, you know, what is a child's laugh or a child's crying. My grandchildren, the older is adolescent and is bringing adolescence to me with all the goods and difficulties. She's 15. And then it's 11, it's 12 and 11 and 10 and 6 and 3, and there will be a baby. So they bring childhood to me. And when they are together, they used to come home to my house and play and everything. It's a joy of childhood, you know. Again, wonderful. And you don't have to take care of them afterwards. They go back <laughs> at a certain time. So it's just wonderful. I have to say to the two of you, thank you for all of your time. Thank you for all of the work you've done and continue to do. The world needs more of it and more of you. And when your book comes out, can we have a chapter two to this conversation? Well, I would love to do it. It was a wonderful conversation. I really enjoyed it. And oh, being I'm with sorry. Branca was wonderful. Because we, we're talking to Ilana. We're talking to a comrade. We're talking yeah. to a, a compañera. It's the same territory. It's the same language. Even though it's a different generation, it's the same language. We dedicate this time to the three of us talking together. You've made my week, my month, very possibly my year. To be a compañera with the two of you <laughs> is probably the zenith of one's oh life accomplishment. As a <laughs> and Thank you so much. And you take care of yourself also and your mother. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. 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 Um beijo. Um abraço. Tchau. Um abraço. Tchau. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I'm Ilana Landsberg-Lewis, your host of Grandmothers on the Move. If you want to find out more about me or the podcast, go to grandmothersonthemove.com and come back next week for another episode.